Episode 8 of Poem Life, Moving Backward. I may not have mentioned this before, but I'm a big fan of the manual typewriter. I remember the first one I had. It was a Blue Brother typewriter. It had a little case. It was small and light and easy to type on and easy to carry around. And I could get the ribbon back on with no trouble if it came off. I typed up little newspapers on it and stories before I was writing poems. I also used it when I did my imaginary hotel desk clerk act. I had a desk bell that mom had gotten somewhere, a notepad, random keys, and monopoly money. I don't know why I thought a hotel desk clerk needed a typewriter, but it was there on my pretend desk also. I was an incredibly fast two-finger typist. In fact, I didn't learn to type correctly until I was a senior in high school in Mrs. Crow's class. We had the massive typewriters with the blank keys and the tablet textbooks that you could stand up on their own like they sandwich boards. At this time, I was using a massive light brown Remington typewriter at home. The keys on it were a cream color and the space bar I remember was this polished line of cream that was sensitive. Well, as sensitive as a manual typewriter could be to the touch. It was definitely not a portable as it had to have weighed, I don't know, at least 20 pounds, maybe more. My arms kind of hurt just thinking about it. This typewriter traveled with me through the years and years. Even, even when I got one of those rapid fire IBM electric typewriters, or the, that little slim word processor I had where you could read the words you were typing through this tiny half-inch by three-inch screen. I still kept that typewriter. I guess I was waiting for an electrical blackout when I would feel the great need to type instead of writing something down. Well, after taking Mrs. Crow's class, it was certainly a lot faster for me to type than it was to handwrite something. All of this is to say that I typed up a bunch of poems when I was in high school. I am holding a little booklet I put together sometime between the years 1977 and 1980. I typed all of the poems on half sheets of typing paper, and then I put all of the sheets together into a book. It must have been in a small binder at one time, as there are hole punches on the left side. The title page says Moving Backward in all capitals, and my name is under it, also in all capital letters. It has a table of contents page, and the poems are arranged under sections titled Falls, Friends, Places I Used to Know, Perspective, Cuts, Stepping, Other Things, Reprise, White Times, Acquaintance, and still life. There are 51 poems listed on the table of contents, but then there are 11 more that I added to the back of the book sometime later. So there are a total of 62 poems on 87 pages, and I have typed in the number on every page, 87 pages. The first piece in this little book is the title piece, and it's not a poem. It's a four-page story about a person who comes to the realization that she is moving backward. 
I hesitate to read it all, but I'm going to because it is just too bizarre to describe. And it gives an introduction to the poetry in this book. For the purposes of this podcast, which is the forensic study of how poetry happens in one's life, it brings to light what a creative mind does with all the material absorbed in the world during the day in the life of a typical teenage girl. It also helps me to explain what is considered poetry. Now this story, called Moving Backward, it begins and ends with a quote. Quote, My father always told me never to talk to strangers and to keep all the doors locked. End quote. It wasn't until I was 17 that I realized I was moving backward. It was a typical snowy day in January. I'd just been to my best friend's house, and I went outside to see the snowman across the street. I probably wouldn't have noticed it if the newspaper hadn't blown up against my legs, but it did, and when I bent over to pick it up, I saw these footprints. My mother had just bought me a pair of hush puppies for my birthday. I was wearing them. The footprints had a basset hound face in them. A drop of mud lay under one eye. It looked like dried blood, like makeup running from a girl's eye as she's playing basketball in the gym on the other side of town where Dr. Double lives and Mr. Single died. They could have told you they were my footprints. They led to the clearing behind the house where the woods started. I tried to remember when I had gone to get the firewood. Damnation, we'll all freeze to death together. Wouldn't that please you? Turn us into icicles and hang us from the roof like all the others. Watch us melt in the glare of the sun that has caused a small girl to tone over backwards and stare out through the screen at the back door looking for raccoons and other furry things that hide their eyes behind a black mask. It was a week ago the last time I got firewood. I know because it had rained, and my black sweater had little dots of water all over it, and I started crying, and then the dots were even larger. The snow washed away, and I was soon walking in mud. I didn't like looking up into the rain, so I'd only watched the ground as I moved, and then I had come upon the red and white striped swing set, a broken chain turns creaking in the wind. I climbed the ladder hoping no one would see me and tell. I sat on the slide and wondered if the rain would wash me away like the snow and Mrs. Dover's clovers and the candy cane striped paint from a little girl's swing. Someone had called my name and I heard it as though they had whispered it in my ear. I slid down and ran to the door thinking everything was all right. But I looked back once and my footprints were already buried. So now I know the little hush puppies couldn't have happened a week ago. Today was the first day I had worn the shoes. The box from the store still lay in my room, already filled with letters from a distant cousin who came only once a year and had a different hair color every time. 
The prints were mine. I was moving backward. It was summer, and I had acquired a knack for sneaking out my window, crawling down the drain pipe, and jumping onto the well house before skipping away to the tune of Give My Regards to Broadway. I hid under the cabinets and behind the fur coats in wavy department store until they chased me out. Jorley caught up with me in front of the courthouse, and we climbed the elm tree, our pockets full of rocks. I saw my father driving an unfamiliar truck once. He didn't even blink when the rock hit the passenger door. Our supply soon diminished, and Jorley ran off to eat tuna fish sandwiches and homemade bread that sat on the windowsill to cool. The wind would spread its odor to our house and laugh at us. My grandmother never made homemade bread. She usually just sat on the back porch looking out over the flower garden and petting an imaginary cat that sat in her lap. The first time I saw her, I couldn't help thinking how much she looked like a peanut butter cookie. She had lines that curved up and down across her face. I imagined sliding through the curves until I'd come to the end of her face. Then I'd just drop off and lie on the ground like a dandelion that a child picks, then blows away. The first time Grandmother called me by my name was when the circus came to town, and I had sneaked out of the house and stood behind the well, waiting for Dad to finish turning on the sprinklers. I crouched on my heels and pulled the money out of my pocket. I'd counted 57 cents when, my heard, when I heard my name being called. I looked up and saw Granny leaning out my bedroom window. She was here a minute ago, but I think maybe someone got her. She wouldn't just run off like that. Granny, what are you talking about? Fifi, she's disappeared. They've put her away. I know they have. No, Granny, don't say that. I'm sure she'll be back in a minute. She probably just saw a mouse and decided to chase it. They've got her. They're going to send her off. They will. They will. Just then, Mother had come to the window and pulled her away. Even after the shutters had been drawn, I could hear her saying, They will. They will. Mother hadn't seen me, but she because she never thought that Grandmother might be talking to someone. People had grown used to Granny mumbling at the drippy faucets, the loose screen door on the well house, and the dryer as the clothes zippers hit the sides while it turned round. No one ever said anything about Granny's discussions with objects until the postman found her one day trying to climb the oak tree in front of her house. A child's kite had been caught in the branches, its metal frame banged back and forth in the wind. He told Father she kept muttering, Fifi, don't be a bad kitty. They'll take you away too. I couldn't understand why she had such an obsession with the make-believe cat. But a few days later, I overheard Mother and Grandmother talking about the feline in question. I didn't get much out of the conversation, but they seemed to be talking about Fifi as if she were a person. Anyway, Mom got mad as hell 
and Granny stormed out of the kitchen, knocking over a freshly made bowl of jello. Joey started to cry, and Mom tried to comfort him, saying she and Gran weren't really mad at each other. I had to tell her that Joey wasn't crying because they were yelling. He was really upset over the jello. Strawberry was his favorite. We got sent to bed early that night, and all the next day I kept wanting to ask Mom about Fifi. She was still kind of pissed, though, so I didn't. Something else was on my mind, anyway. I'd went to the post office in the morning and got lost. It about scared me to death, because I know where everything is in this town. I went back to the house and started out again, but I still ended up in the wrong place. I knew where I wanted to go, yet I had no control. I was moving backward again. Julie came over the next day. I was playing jacks in the kitchen. I never played jacks, but Dad had bought me a brand new set of them, and I felt obligated. He was sitting in the front room now, watching a football game and eating Oreos. Mom was talking to Granny about the Babish's house catching on fire and how terrible it was how old the cuckoo clock was that melted on the wall and brown dripped down to the white tile floor and ran out the door, making a puddle at the bottom of the steps. That was how they found out the kitchen was burning. Little Johnny saw the puddle when he rode a stick horse across the porch and thought it was horse droppings. So he went out to the barn to tell his father, and then he smelled the smoke that he had thought was his imagination. They ran across the road to Mr. Farley's house and called the fireman. Mrs. Farley was making blueberry muffins, and she offered the Babish men some, and they looked at her like she was one of those African women that just walked out of the pages of National Geographic. They said, no, thank you. Meanwhile, the firemen had come and were making a lot of commotion. The Babishes went and stood in the middle of the road and watched as the water flopped into the black house. They heard a strangled cry, and one of the firemen crawled out of the kitchen window and threw up all over the rose bush that Mrs. Babish had planted a year before. He gasped out something about a woman, and for the first time, the two men in the middle of the road remembered. Mom! Johnny cried weakly, running for the house and knowing it was too late. We sneaked out the back door leaving the jacks scattered across the floor. Jorley hated little kids' games. They made him sick to his stomach. There was a rainbow, although it hadn't rained. Jorley just couldn't understand it, but I did. We went down to the creek and sat in the clear water watching for crawdads. We caught a canful, and then we skinned them, and Jorley made a fire. After we'd eaten until we were full, we laid back on the sand and stared up at the sky. Clouds were forming. Walking home, picking at the mud between our toes, it started to rain. Quote, you see, Father, everything is going to be different now. Your cigar will light and burn up for you. The rainbow is going to come before the rain. People move backwards, but so does everything else. So, what to say about this piece? Uh, I've always had a strange mind. 
Rereading it now, some 40-odd years after it was written, I am struck by how surreal it is, and that some of that surrealism really does seem to work, and that some of it really is poetry. It definitely has an unfinished quality about it, even though it also has this capping-off device of the quotes. The first quote makes it sound like the speaker is talking to someone about her father, and the last quote is said directly to the father. It's kind of apocalyptic. That's another reason I read the whole thing. It suits the feeling of our times. Today, as I am recording this, it is March 17, 2020. The coronavirus is spreading. Businesses are closing down. Schools are already closed. Everyone is being advised to stay home if possible. A big change is coming, and how are things going to end up? In this story, somehow people move backward even though they are walking forward. You have to use some logic and foresight to plan to go the opposite direction of where you're trying to get in order to get where you want to be. This story has no traditional story arc to it. It includes a lot of imagery that I find poetic, particularly the description of the swing set, the description of the shoe prints, Granny's plight, and what of that? What in the hell is this Fifi? There is a loss there that is larger than that of a cat or even a person. It is a, <clears throat> I guess it's possible I included this piece at the beginning of the book because it is a kind of introduction to the poems in the book. When a teenager experiences something like unrequited love, it's apocalyptic. The feeling can be apocalyptic. And what teenager has not experienced a bad breakup or being spurned and felt the world bottom out for him or her? It is normal teenage despair. It can feel like moving backward. But I was a poet. And a poet, even an immature one, knows that every poem can't be Romeo and Juliet dramatics and personal upheaval. Most poetry has to have some metaphoric level in which to thrive and survive and live on in infamy or fame or what have you. The longing for connection is what is behind the poems in this book, is what is behind the poems most teenagers write. It might also be the motivation for most adult poems, I don't know. Ian e. Forster's simple two-word epigraph for his book, Howard's End, Only Connect, is direct and inescapable. I was writing poetry to connect within myself the feelings I had with the physical reality of who I was and where I was going. Writing poetry has always been a way for me to extend my observation of the world through my body, my mind, down my arms and into my fingertips and into the words on a page or a computer keyboard. Using a typewriter to do this act of personal connection was vital as it helped me to type as quickly as I was thinking and to give gravity and authority to my words by putting them into a form that could be conceived as legitimate, a, a print book. At the time, this form was not a way of connecting with other people, though, as I didn't allow anyone to read my poems until I was in college. 
I know my mom occasionally went through my papers and read some of the poems. And everyone who has ever lived in a small town with a teacher parent also knows this. You run the risk of having her as a teacher, which I did my sophomore year, English class. Uh, and she told me later she specifically had us do this poetry unit because she wanted to read my poems. But only connect was certainly a theme of my poems, and it's a theme of this opening entitled story, Moving Backward. In a time of pandemic, connection is a danger to survival. In a time of despair, connection is necessary for survival. So then the task is how to bridge this divide. People don't become real poets because it's easy. Anyone who easily writes a poem isn't writing poetry. Poetry is the hard stuff of life, and I don't mean dire stuff all the time. I just mean the hard stuff, love, truth, survival, trust, fear, intimacy. Those are poetry subjects, and only the person who has an authentic relationship with words and a honed skill that observation can be a poet. Because in order to write something meaningful for other people, you have to illustrate these subjects with concrete detail that draws out that emotional response from the reader. I've worked with a lot of teenage writers over the years, and it is rare that I see one who understands this. I don't think it is the biological, it, it's not in the biological wheelhouse of most teens to be able to transfer one's personal feelings into a metaphor that is then developed with sensory imagery. Instead, most just end up pouring out their personal feelings in abstract and boring ways. Poetry slams are a great example of this. But that's a whole other topic for another day. I don't want to get started on that nonsense. That said, I'll end this podcast with all my musings about the role of the typewriter in the life of the budding poet with this poem about loss and the search for connection. As with all the poems in this little book, it needs revision, but the purpose of this podcast is to look at what is written at a certain time in space, so I'm not altering it. It's called Welcomes. Oh, what I wouldn't give for a nickel and a dime and a cherry with a seed inside to break my teeth upon. There's something no one knows, but everyone seeks to find in the bottom of a cold rain barrel and in the grass beneath the slide, where the blades are broken, bended, and dull like morning hours, a circle worn into the earth by children in their sleep. And doesn't anyone remember the girl with light brown hair who slept on hills and knew no fear of tall dark shadows in the night. Going home is never easy, they all seem to say. Running across the rough cement and making a new path in Molly's You killed my husband and son, you damn Nazis backyard. Then flying over the picket fence, expecting to land in a field of posies and getting sooty instead. Because going home can be easy when the home you went to is gone. And doesn't anyone remember the girl with light brown hair who slept on hills 
and knew no fear of tall dark shadows in the night. Going home is never easy.